This was about an hour ago. It's not nearly as bad as some of them, but I'm still shaking up. It was roughly 9pm. It was a Tuesday night. Nothing ever happens on Tuesdays. I went downstairs to get my dog so she could sleep in bed with me. I said goodnight to my parents, got my meds, and got a glass of water. I set the cop down and turned off the lights, totally forgetting about my glass of water. I placed my dog on my bed, turned on my laptop, and realized I left my water downstairs. I went back downstairs to get it, and I saw a car pull up through the kitchen window. I thought it was my older sister, but she was staying at a friend's house. I looked out, and it was a small compact car, from what I could see, with two men inside. I had no clue who they were, so I began to stress out. I tried to get a closer look, while making sure not to be spotted. I'm a small guy, 5'5", and weak as hell. A 14-year-old kid can't take on two tall, buff-looking men. I saw something in the back of the car, but couldn't quite make out what it was. I snapped out of it and grabbed my water. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of them walk around towards my house. I lost it at that point and ran to my parents' room. I asked, who's outside? My dad was confused and said, is it your sister? I shook my head. I told him that we don't know them. They weren't our neighbors, plus their houses are in walking distance, so there's no need for a car. My dad got up and my mom followed. They looked out the front door and saw a tall man in a gray Under Armour hoodie walking up, carrying something. My dad instantly went out there and freaked the guy out. My mom rushed me upstairs and had her phone ready. I went to my room, still holding my water. I have no clue what happened to those two guys who creepily drove up to my house when it was pitch black outside. I hope I don't see you again. First time living alone in my apartment. I was walking out to my car in heels to attend an evening church service. I hear this guy saying, Hey, hello, can you help me? I'm standing about 10 feet away when I stop to observe this man in a wheelchair. He had one sack of groceries in his lap and two on the ground besides him. He had on what looked like veteran attire and combat boots. But what stood out to me most is... I noticed how incredibly buff he was. Not just his arms, but his calves. The hairs on my neck instantly stood up. I guess while silently observing, he was waiting for me to walk up to him. I took a few steps back and shook my head. His immediate response was, I'm not going to do anything to you. Can't you see? I'm in a wheelchair. He then pointed to his door and said, Look, I just need help putting these bags inside my door on the floor. That's all. I declined politely and began to walk away. The screaming, cursing, and insults is what made me basically run to my car. Safe in my car with the doors locked, I couldn't shake that awful feeling off of me. Fast forward a couple days later, and I'm driving down the street headed home. Who do I see walking without a limp or a cane? My heart dropped. I stayed in my apartment for a week, too scared to go out, just in case of any more encounters. To this day, this strange encounter haunts me. Edit. I did not call the police. To be honest, I think I was sort of in shock.
About five years ago, I was living with my parents and my twin brother was there too. Every morning at about 7am, we would both head out for a run. We had mapped out this giant loop that we would run. To make it a bit of a competition, I would run it in one direction and my twin brother would run it in the other direction. That way we could run and stay focused. Part of this loop was on the main street of the city where we live. On the main road, there is this shady apartment hidden by a bunch of trees. The direction I was running, the view of the apartments was obscured by a giant hedge bush and I couldn't see the apartments until I was right in front of them. Out of my peripherals, I see this woman standing among the trees, staring at me. I immediately got the chills and did not turn to face her. So I ran and forgot about it. I passed my twin about 10 minutes later. He's going in the opposite direction as I. I get home and my twin isn't back yet, so I go about the rest of my morning routine, including taking a shower. I get out of the shower and my twin still hasn't came back yet, and I'm starting to get a bit worried. An hour after I had gotten home, he's still not back, so I call him. He tells me he's on his way back, but he has something that he needs to tell me and my parents. Finally he gets home and tells us that when he was running in front of those apartments, he saw a woman hanging from the trees in front of the apartments. As soon as it's obvious that he's seen her, a man comes sprinting out of the apartments, wailing and screaming, No, I can't believe she did this, and grabs her body and lays it on the ground and starts performing CPR. It's obvious he is her husband. My brother called the local police and they dispatched an ambulance and police officers. My brother had to stay for questioning. He was obviously troubled by it. Since he was going in the opposite way that I was running, he didn't have that huge hedge blocking his view and got a straight view of the woman hanging there. It's still hard for me to believe that that woman that I saw staring at me out my peripherals was dead the entire time. I do find it sketchy that the husband came running out as soon as it was obvious that someone had discovered the body. That's a bit too convenient if you ask me, but I don't want to say this man killed her without any evidence. My brother was never followed up with by the police, leading me to believe that the death was ruled a suicide. I still can't fathom that if I turned my head to face this woman, I would have discovered her about 20 minutes earlier than my twin, and it deeply troubles me that I didn't. Before my mom married my dad, she dated a man named Craig. At first, he was sweet, but slowly became abusive. My mother tried to leave him multiple times, but Craig always threatened her. After one violent argument, my mom waited and fled in the middle of the night. Years passed, and she got married and had me. My dad's work includes a lot of traveling, so it was mostly my mom and I alone in our big acreage home. My mom was in the kitchen making lasagna while I was sitting in my high chair. It was extremely hot that day so she opened the kitchen door to let some air in. She heard heavy footsteps enter into the kitchen behind her. My excited mom assumed it was my dad so she turned around with a hello my love. Her excitement immediately turned to terror. There was Craig standing in the middle of her kitchen with a gun visibly tucked in his pants. Craig smiled at her and asked what she was making. My mom mustered enough courage and said, Lasagna. She was physically shaking and Craig sat himself down besides me. 
He playfully pinched my cheek and I laughed at him. My mom was holding back tears as she finally asked what he was doing at her house. Craig said he just wanted to visit and he would leave when he was done eating. When the lasagna was ready, my mom served him. My mom took me and sat across from Craig so she could keep an eye on him. Craig said he still had her things at his house and that she was welcome to get them. My mom said she didn't need any of it and he could throw it out. Craig started to get agitated and said that she threw him away like garbage too. He said she was acting tough but he knew deep down inside that she was still the stupid girl that he had dated. Craig claimed that my mom needed him in her life and that she couldn't function if he wasn't there to help her. He said that he needed to be there to raise me because my dad was a bitch who would never be able to protect me or my mom. Craig said that if he was crazy, he could have easily kidnapped us or done things to my mom because my dad was a pussy that couldn't protect what was his. My mom started to cry and told Craig to leave her house. Craig replied that it wasn't her house and that he had every right to be there. She told him that she'll call the police, which really made him angry. He threatened her that if cops got involved, he would hire men to cut her up into pieces and film it. My mom started to cry even louder, and it agitated Craig through his plate and yelled at her to stop crying and that he loved her. I got scared and started crying, to which Craig stood up and approached my mom. She jumped out of her chair with me cradled in her arms. She begged for Craig to spare my life. Craig tried to reach over and touch my mom, but she got scared and fell on the floor sobbing. The phone began to ring, and Craig became so overwhelmed that he just ran out of the house. The cops and his family found him, about to shoot himself in the head. His adult son had to convince him not to do it. My mom was so traumatized that she didn't want to deal with any of it, so she got a restraining order against him. Her and my dad moved across the country I was curious and searched this guy up and was shocked to see that he was dating a college age girl who looked like the woman he couldn't have. As of recently, strange people have been coming to my house and I fear that they're casing my home for a robbery or something similar. I live in a rural area in New England and not much happens here. There's definitely not a lot of crime and not too many dangerous individuals. I was doing schoolwork one day in my room with my window open and the curtains closed when someone stopped their motorcycle outside. It was a man in his mid to late 50s with gray hair. He was wearing a brand new leather jacket. It was obviously he had bought it that day or the day before and he had boat shoes. He was definitely not a biker. Anyways, he knocked on my door and asked for gasoline for his motorcycle. I noticed his bike was parked on the opposite side of the street, right near the driveway to another house. He had came across the street to our house rather than asking the neighbor across the street. It was extremely strange. Nevertheless, we gave him gas and he drove away. The second occurrence is much less intrusive, but strange nevertheless. I was in my room as usual and I heard a car outside. It stopped right in front of our house. I didn't get a look at the car, but someone inside of it was having a phone call. They appeared to be talking to a coworker. I heard them say, Tell boss that we're right in front of, insert address, and they drove away. Why would they be telling their coworker where they were? It's just weird. 
Those are two notable occasions that strangers were being weird, but in general, unfamiliar cars have been slowing down near my house, gone in my driveway, backed out, changed directions. One time, I was in my bathroom and I heard a sound from upstairs. It sounded like someone was in my house. I also swear I could hear footsteps outside my window one night, but didn't see anything. I'm probably just paranoid, but it seems like something weird's going on. Edit. Thanks for the suggestions. We actually have security cameras, one in front and one in the back, but nothing's been caught on them right now. There's always someone in the house, so hopefully, if these robbers are cased in the house, they will realize that someone's always home and get scared away. If anything further happens, I'll make a new post. My husband Joe works at his family business with his dad. It's a shop, which his dad has owned since before he was born. My husband has worked there all his life. He's now 40. So a lot of the customers knew him pretty well because they've been shopping there for a number of years. About eight years ago, Joe came home one night and told me about this customer in the shop called Bernard. Bernard was a similar age to Joe and I and had become a regular customer. Bernard and his wife Vanessa and their two kids lived nearby and had bought numerous things from the shop. Joe had even been to their house to deliver some purchases, so we got to know them. Bernard and his family were originally from France, but moved to the UK a year earlier because of Vanessa's job. Bernard's younger brother Alex and his best friend Victor also moved to the UK with the family, and they all lived together in the same house. Joe thought Bernard and his wife seemed like lovely people. They told him that they hadn't made many friends in the UK yet, and he thought maybe that they were hinting that we should spend more time together. As Vanessa often told Joe, she'd like to meet me, and they always took time to stop and chat with him when they were in the shop. Joe said that they seemed like nice people, and he felt bad that they didn't have many friends, so he asked me if I'd be willing to go to dinner with them. I'm quite social, and trust his judgment, so I was more than happy to meet them. A few weeks later, we arranged dinner and went out for a meal as a foursome. Alex and Victor, Bernard's brother, and his friend babysat their children so we could go out on a double date. I really liked Bernard and Vanessa. The conversation flowed easily, and I enjoyed their company that evening. They also had a lovely time and invited us to go out again a couple weeks later. After that, we went out with Bernard and Vanessa quite regularly, on average every three to six weeks over a course of two years. We'd meet up with each other and go for dinner, bowling, or to the cinema with them. Alex and Victor never came because they were the babysitters, and being a little younger than the four of us, it didn't seem like we'd have much in common anyway. Bernard never told me whether Alex or Victor were a couple or just friends. He just referred to Victor as Alex's best friend, and we never asked. We met them multiple times when we go to Bernard's house before our evening out. They'd invite us in as they were getting ready. So we'd meet Alex, Victor, and their children on quite a few occasions. Bernard and Vanessa came to our house multiple times too. Eventually, the friendship fizzled out when Bernard and his family moved further away from us. We only visited them once or twice, and after that, eventually lost touch altogether. Fast forward a couple years later, and one day, out of the blue, Vanessa and the children come into the shop to buy some things. 
Joe was surprised after not seeing them for so long, and they started chatting. He asked how Bernard was, and Vanessa told him that he was in prison. Joe was really shocked and asked why, but Vanessa wouldn't say, and mumbled something vague about it being a long story, and that he shouldn't really be there. Then she left as quickly as possible. Joe came home and told me, and we were both in shock and wondering what he'd done, but we kind of forgot about it, because at this point, these people weren't in our lives anymore anyways. We assumed he must have done something small, or accidental. A couple weeks later, Joe is reading the local newspaper and cannot believe his eyes. Bernard's photo and full name is in the paper as part of a murder story. Apparently, Bernard and his brother Alex had been on trial for the murder of Alex's friend, Victor. Victor was found beaten to death in their garden shed. They are both charged and found guilty and have been sentenced to life. Their photos, full names, as well as Victor's, were in the article as well. So there's no doubt, it was definitely them. The article didn't go into detail as why they killed Victor, but it was believed that there was an argument over money, with Alex admitting that he killed him because he wouldn't give him the money that he agreed to. Bernard was still denying it, I think, but had been found guilty nevertheless. When we had been going out with Bernard and Vanessa, Bernard had mentioned to us once about how Alex and Victor gave him their salaries to mind and he controlled their money because they were bad with their money and needed help managing their finances. We thought it was unusual because Alex and Victor were in their early 20s, so although young, technically they were old enough to manage their own money, but we thought maybe because they were living in a foreign country, they just needed a little extra help with their bills and it was none of our business, so we thought nothing more of it at the time. Joe and I expect that the arrangement hadn't been working for Victor anymore, and perhaps he refused to hand over his salary, resulting in Bernard and Alex beating him to death and hiding him in the shed. We obviously don't know this, and it's just a guess. Shocking considering Bernard's two young children also lived in the house. So I was basically friends with a convicted murderer. Gives me chills to think I visited the house and met the victim and both the killers, and had been friends with one of the killers for nearly two years. This story took place five years ago, when I was 13. I should point out that I look quite young for my age. It could be easily mistaken for being 11 or 12. One day after school, I was bored and decided to go to the mall. I used to go to a lot of places alone, so this was nothing out of the ordinary. It was quite a big mall, which was super busy at the time. I was walking around for a bit and went and sat down at one of those little couches in the middle of the mall for a few people to share. So I'm sitting down, minding my own business, just scrolling through my phone, like any teen would, when this guy, who was alone and not carrying any bags, which is a bit strange when you're in the mall, he walks up to me and looks at me, and then sat down next to me. It was a bit creepy because it didn't seem like he intended to sit down until he saw me. He was alone, late 20s, and looked to have money, judging on his coat, watch, and shoes, He sits down next to me, and I'm already feeling a bit uncomfortable. I'm usually fine with strangers sitting next to me, but the way he sat down made me feel uneasy. He looked at me, and I could see it from the corner of my eye. I could tell that he was about to do or say something, and it didn't feel right, but my stupid ass didn't get up either. I thought nothing would happen since it's a busy mall, so nothing would happen, right? Well, after a few minutes, he pulls out a piece of paper and a pen, Who the fuck carries a pen and paper? 
Not many people do, so it seemed odd. He writes down his number. He gets up and looks at me while standing up. He handed me the piece of paper. He said that I was pretty and if I ever wanted to hang out with him and be friends or whatever, then to text his number. He then left. My heart sunk to my underwear and I really felt like something was wrong. Even if his intentions were harmless, to think he handed me his number and I physically looked no older than 13 does not sit well with me. And we didn't even talk, so why would I text his number? Anyways, I left and go home afterwards and tell my parents. They contacted the police and told us not to contact him and that it could potentially be sex trafficking, but they were unwilling to take his phone number to investigate any further. More of the story, either don't be alone or get the fuck up when something doesn't feel right. Let me start by adding a little context. I'm a 29 year old female but often get mistaken for being much younger than I actually am. Sometimes people would mistake me for being 13 to 15 years old as I have a baby face and am 5'2", which I usually use to my advantage if I don't want to talk to someone. So yesterday, I went to the mall to pick up a dress since my cousin is getting married next month. Small ceremony at her house due to COVID. I wasn't picking anything too fancy since the wedding isn't super big or traditional, but dresses I thought were still nice. As I picked the last of my five options and made my way out of the dressing room, I was approached by a woman who asked how old I was. I told her not to worry about it and went to trying things on. I picked out a dress I liked and exited the dressing room. When I returned to unwanted dresses to an employee, I was again approached by the same woman who again decided it was her business to ask how old I was. Again, I told her not to worry about it and continued on to find some cute shoes to match my dress. When looking at shoes, I was approached yet again by this woman, who all of a sudden decided that I was a child and then proceeded to go on a rant about how 12 year olds shouldn't be left alone in the mall. Where is your mother? I, as nicely as I could at the moment, let her know that I'm an adult, that I was fine, and could she please leave me alone? This I guess upset her and she reported me to a security guard as a lost child. When approached by security I answered his questions and even showed him my ID to prove that I'm an adult and let him know that she had been bothering me. As far as I know he told her that I was an adult and to leave me alone. The rest of the day wherever I went in the mall this woman followed me into every store. Finally I got annoyed enough just to leave and this woman followed me to my car where she proceeded to tell me to get into her car and she would drive me home. I let her know again that I was an adult, I had my own car and was going to drive myself home. I got in my car and drove around for a good hour before finally going home. A couple years back, I was without a car and lived in what we consider the downtown area of Pensacola, Florida. Being that I didn't have a car, I'd frequently use Uber to and from work and sometimes from bars downtown if it was late and I felt unsafe as a small lesbian walking home. Our town doesn't have a lot of hate crimes, but unwelcome confrontations from religious people or just ignorant people. Never really had a problem with any of the drivers until I met James. James, I assume was from somewhere else because his English wasn't that good. Obviously not a problem. He had picked me up to take me to work a few times, 
but I had a hard time understanding, so our conversations were short and confusing. One time, instead of talking, he sang to me the name game. I have an unusual name that rhymes with Bailey, Haley, Kaylee, etc. So when that happened, it was okay. Kind of funny, but it lasted a 20 minute ride home. So I got weird and didn't know what to say for a while. Fast forward maybe a couple months later. I had a drink and a few beers at a local dive bar and it was time to walk home. I realized I was probably too drunk to walk, so I called an Uber. Well, it was James. He recognized me. I climbed in the car and we proceeded to my house. I was maybe only two miles away from my house. Not a bad walk during the day, but at night, nah. Well, James decides that instead of driving me home, he wants to stop by and buy me a Whataburger because I needed food before I got home. Sweet, right? So instead, he drives towards Whataburger. At this point, I'm cool and happy with what's happening. Well, here comes Whataburger and he drives past. I'm like, hey, that was it. He said, yeah, I know, but I forgot my wallet at my house. We had to go there first. That's when I start to sober up and tell him, no, just take me home. Well, he doesn't stop at first and argues that I should be nicer to him and he's doing me a favor. So I get a little more vocal. After that, he says, fine, I'll turn around and something in another language that I could only assume meant bitch or whatever. I felt like I couldn't wait, so I hopped out at a red light and just risked the walk home, which would have been just two miles, but it was more like four miles because we're down by Whataburger. I did make it home safe, but sadly, on my way home, the police stopped and searched me, asking me why I was out so late in what would be considered a bad neighborhood. They didn't care about the weird driver because nothing happened. So yeah, sort of creepy to me. This happened last night. I had taken some mushrooms with my friends earlier, just a small dose. I had a bunch of energy from them, so I couldn't sleep and decided to go for a walk around the block. I live in Los Angeles. It's a relatively safe area, but not the best. Since COVID started, it's not as busy or lively as it usually is because the main draws to my neighborhood are the local theaters, comedy clubs, which have been shut down for months. My apartment building is between the two very busy streets that connect in a V-shape, for reference. There were a lot of cars still driving at 1am, so I felt safe. Still, I'm a young woman who has consumed a lot of true crime stories in her lifetime, so I didn't really feel that safe late at night by default. But nothing ever happened, and I wanted fresh air. Of course, my senses were super heightened because of the mushrooms. I took a left out of my building, then another left down the busy street. After walking for five minutes, I started to kind of get a sense that someone had been following me. I turned around and there's someone like a few meters back. I figured that I'm just paranoid and they were not actually following me. Still, I felt sketched out. I get to the end of the street and realize I can't go anywhere except to go straight or take another left down an alley, which was my original plan for my walking route. There is a hedge separating the alley from the next busy street, and I'm now standing at the point of the V. The person behind me was getting closer and was very clearly approaching me. I tried to lose him, and I was hoping that there would be a sidewalk on the other side of the hedge, but it was just the street. 
I basically just ended up walking directionless into the street and anyone looking at me probably thought there was something seriously wrong with me. I wasn't going to just keep going straight because to get home, I would have to come back this way anyway. I'm also new to the neighborhood and wasn't sure where to go in general. So I'm basically at a loss. Also probably not thinking that clearly. He comes up to me and goes, Hey, I was calling you. You didn't hear me honking my horn? At this point, I was just like, dude, what do you want from me? And he was like, what's your name? I just came back from a party and saw you and wanted to say hi. It was probably a mixture of factors, but I was way more shaken up by this than I normally would have been. I reached into my bag to grab the can of mace that I carry with me and he goes, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to talk to you. And I was like, okay, well, I have to go home. He keeps persisting, getting closer to me, and asked me, Well, where do you live? I'll come with you. I said, no, leave me alone. I just want to get home. He still would not leave me alone. And I was trying to figure out where to go because I wasn't just going to start walking down the alley with this guy behind me and wasn't sure whether he would follow me in either direction I went. I was very clear about the fact that I had mace though, and finally, I think he just gave up and walked away. I stood at the corner of the intersection and just started to sob. I noticed the dispensary across the street was still open, so I ran there. Once I made sure he was gone, I ran back across the street to my apartment, still shaking. All in all, this situation was harmless. I have no idea if he was harmless or not, though. I am a victim of sexual assault, and my old roommate was attacked outside of our apartment building. I was just expecting the worst, and because I was on mushrooms, I was shaking up. I really hope I don't see this man again, and that's probably it for the late night shroom walks around here. Real quick though, let's get some things straight. 1. If you see a woman alone late at night and you want to approach her, leave her alone. If you're trying to get someone's attention and they're ignoring you, leave her alone. I've been a fireman for going on 20 years now, and I decided it's time to share some of the strange things I've seen. There have been a few calls I've gone on that have genuinely terrified me, and while I can't explain some of the things I've seen, I can at least share them with you. Maybe that will bring me some peace, or at least perhaps some closure. We got the call about 15 or so years ago. A two-story house was on fire in the east side of town, in a place I won't name out of respect for those that died that day. Just know it was a really bad neighborhood, and we weren't thrilled about the call. Four of us arrived on the scene together, and we could immediately see that the situation was more complicated than the radio had said. The house was burning like crazy, and there was no way we were going inside or even going to be able to get near it. All we could do was try to contain it, but there was an extra challenge. The fire had already spread to a warehouse that was almost pressed up against the house. If you've never lived in an area like this, the homes and stores are extremely crammed together in a small space, which has led to, on more than one occasion, 
a fire spreading and doing far more damage than it would have had the homes had even 10 more feet of space between them. One thing with arriving on a scene as a fireman is that people will almost always rush up to talk with you. There are first and foremost the home or business owners, but there's always curious neighbors, friends, and on one occasion, even a dog ran up to me. That's actually quite an interesting story that I'll try and get to if I have time, but back to the first story for now. A young woman of maybe 20, maybe 30, it was hard to tell, ran up and explained that the home was hers and everyone was fortunately safe and out of the home. I asked her if she was sure, not that we could have done much anyway at that point, and she nodded. There were thankfully no pets in the home, and after another few moments with her, an embarrassed look washed over her face. It was my fault. I think it started because I left the stove on and forgot about it. I didn't press the issue. It didn't matter at this point, and she looked like she had suffered enough embarrassment already. We evacuated the neighbors out of their homes in case the fire jumped. Luckily, it wasn't a windy day, otherwise it would have, and we hit the place with everything we had. Now, this is where the story really takes a strange turn. We hadn't hit the warehouse that was on fire yet because it was boarded up and there were no buildings on the other side of it. The house was the priority, and the other guys in the company had an ETA of 10 or 20, so we were planning on leaving it to them. I happened to look up at the fourth story window, and I saw a little girl staring at me back through the glass. Now, the flames hadn't hit the fourth floor yet, it seemed, but they were spreading fast and it wasn't going to take long. The really eerie part of all this was that the little girl didn't seem frightened. I mean, granted, I'm telling you this story years after it happened, and I only saw her through that window for a second or two. But I swear I can remember it clear as day. The little girl was wearing a white dress, looking directly at me, and she wasn't scared at all. She wasn't waving her arms or trying to scream out the window for help or anything you'd expect. She just stood there, watching me. I grabbed a pal of mine named Jimmy and pointed towards the fourth floor window, but there was no sign of her. She was there, I told him. Jimmy nodded, and within a minute we'd set up the ladder to the closest window at the warehouse. The other team still hadn't gotten here, and we were spread thin, but the two of us were going to break the glass and go in together to find the little girl. We didn't have long, and we knew it. But when you're in a life or death situation, there's a fine line between urgency and making a careless mistake that could cost the life of not only yourself, but others as well. We cleared out the glass, hoping the little girl would be close up and we could take her down the ladder with us, but of course she wasn't. Alright, let's go in, I told Jimmy. The warehouse was bigger than it looked from the outside. And even with the two of us splitting up, it took a good 20 minutes to search the whole floor. I couldn't tell what the place had been used for, but there were old steel machines with big gaps underneath them, what seemed like dozens of doors, and the fact that the floor seemed partly rotted didn't help us do it any faster. We both called out for her, and after a while Jimmy came over and said, You sure you saw someone up here? Yeah, I'm sure. Sure. 
I replied, though I was starting to question if I really was. Maybe it had just been a reflection in the glass, or a trick of the mind. But I'd never hallucinated before. The guys radioed that we needed to head out, that the fire had completely spread to the third floor now and was picking up speed. I don't think Jimmy believed a little girl was up there, but he trusted me. And if something would have happened when we did a second quick sweep of the floor, I don't think I ever would have forgiven myself. But we both made it back to the ladder safely after a second sweep and headed down the ladder one after the other. We were back on the ground when the other crew arrived and I was headed back to inform them of the situation. When I looked up at the warehouse window and I saw the little girl again. This time though, she was in the third floor window. And like I said, the third floor was completely on fire. Jimmy, I yelled over at my friend. But before he could run back to get a look, she was gone. I know it was years ago. I know I was the only one that saw her and that maybe it was only a trick of my mind. But I can remember clearly how she looked in the flame staring back at me. She wasn't scared. She wasn't trying to escape the flames. It was almost like she was a part of them. This next story was told by a friend of mine. Matt was a smoke jumper, still is as a matter of fact, and he shared this story with me over a few beers a few months back. Matt brought up that he had seen something strange while parachuting down one of those frequent California fires that have become so common nowadays. He told me that after he had jumped from the plane and was waiting to open the chute, something flew past him. I think I would have laughed when he told me had I not had my own strange experiences myself over the years and if there wasn't a dead serious look on my friend's face. Matt didn't speak long about it, but he told me it looked pure black. It almost looked like a bat, but it was the size of a man. It flew so close to him he said that when he landed, he felt the taste of blood and realized the thing had scratched him or something. There was a deep cut under his right eye, about an inch below it. The other guys thought he had hit something when he jumped, and he asked them if they had seen anything on the way down. They shook their heads and told him no, they hadn't seen a thing. To this day, he doesn't know what it was, but from the look on his face when he was telling me the story, he believes what he saw. And... I think a part of him knows that that might mean there are things out there hiding that us humans don't know about. There's a Chicago ghost story about a phantom print that showed up at a very old fire station, Engine Company 107. It was a cool April day in 1924 when Frank Levy was working washing a window at the station. It was unlike him when he paused and told a friend that he somehow knew he was going to die that day. Right at that moment, the station got a call that a fire had erupted at an office building. The men drove over, with Frank not saying a word on the drive. When the crew got there, they cleared the area as usual, 
but were caught off guard when a large wall crumbled. Eight of the men were killed, and yes, Frank was among them. It wasn't long after that that the men began to see and hear strange happenings around the window Frank had been washing before the call. There was even an imprint of his hand from the day before. The really eerie part was that no matter what they did, they couldn't erase his handprint from the window. Sometimes as the years passed, people would offer to replace the glass, but it just didn't seem right, and the remaining firemen said so. Frank was their friend, and maybe it was just his way of telling them that he was still there watching over them. The fingerprint was so well known that it even attracted tourists and other firemen from around the town. Sadly, the window was finally broken one day when a paper boy threw the morning newspaper at the station. The glass broke immediately, and Frank's handprint was no more. But the last eerie part of the story is that the glass broke exactly 20 years from the day of Frank's death. The Hose Tower Hanging An article in the Occult Museum explains how different firemen have heard strange noises at a certain station. Only late at night, they hear chains being drugged at the very peak of the hose tower. They've checked the area multiple times, but it's always empty. There's an old story, however, that back many years ago, a young man hung himself directly in the hose tower and swung back and forth for a week before he was discovered. The Ouija board is another creepy story from the same source. The story explains how there was an old building built in the 30s that many believed to be haunted. There was the usual odd things happening about, lights flickering, screams being heard, the soft patter of footsteps on the floor perhaps unwisely. Some of the firemen decided to pick up a Ouija board one evening to see what would happen. As the story goes, they found out there were two ghosts, one even being a past fire chief, and the other a tiny boy who lived nearby in a miner's house, long since destroyed. The members said that the chief even confirmed who he was by telling the firemen other firefighters who had died over the years. They verified the names later on with research, and they were indeed real. The strange happenings only happen at night. The next story comes from Fire Rescue 1 and took place in Fire Station 55 in California. Many firemen say that the place is haunted, an old worn-out building that even goes back to the gold rush. The men all agree that the place is haunted by a ghost, and that whatever it is, it doesn't want any doors closed. Captain Scott McLean stated, All of the people have experienced it at one time or another. It just happens. You just work with it. He went on to say the ghost has been at the station for almost 10 years. They don't know much about the ghost, but there have been reports of those sleeping, feeling pinned down, similar to the feelings one would experience during sleep paralysis. Perhaps the two are related. 
Many have had ideas or guesses as to what or who it is, but perhaps no one will ever really know the truth of what haunts the old station. The next story takes place in an old fire station in Kentucky. Huntington Paranormal investigated the old firehouse, where many have stated being frightened by children's voices and loud noises on the walls when no one's in the area. The men and women have even seen a ghostly shape of a firefighter in a bright blue uniform just sitting calmly in one of the fire trucks. Some have tried to get some of the paranormal activity on video or on some type of recording, but nothing has worked for many years. They did, however, when going through recordings recently, record a distinct male voice, and even one of a child. Both of the voices even responded to the other firefighters when they spoke to them. Perhaps they're staying around because they have a story to tell, or maybe they used to live in a nearby home when they passed on. This next story of the evening is quite possibly the most paranormal and the most frightening. It took place somewhere in the United States in an undisclosed location, but the two firemen who saw the creature have explained what happened the same way. The two men say that a few years back, they were together in the dead center of a massive forest fire. It was so bad, in fact, that they didn't think they were going to make it out having tried to stop the fire from spreading to nearby homes, but failing. The wind switched directions too quickly for the men to adjust their strategy and escape the area, and they instead had to create a fire shelter. As the blaze changed direction unexpectedly and incredibly quickly, the speed and intensity of the fire was too much. They only had one option if they wanted to survive. They would have to lie on the ground, cover themselves with a thin aluminum shelter, and wait it out. There was nothing else they could do, and the men stated later that they were certain they were going to die. The story takes a terrifying turn when the two men looked up together and they saw something in the flames. They said it looked like it was made of fire, but it was a dark gray color. It floated around the trees near them, stopped a few yards away from the men, and let out a scream. That's how they described the sound, and they said it was so horrible that the men thought their eardrums were going to burst from the force. After a while, the creature moved on as the flames passed, and while it's a miracle the men survived, they both said, that they don't think what they saw was a force for good, but whatever it was, it seemed to be a force for evil. This last story is especially heartbreaking due to it regarding a little girl, though no one knows the full nature of what happened to her. The story isn't graphic in nature, but it's instead heartbreaking, and even more filled with mystery. The story takes place in Kansas 20 or so years ago. No one's really sure of the exact date as far as the legend goes, but many have seen the girl's ghost late at night. 
Multiple firemen in the area have reported seeing a glowing shape of a little girl at each fire in the city. And while they haven't reported feeling scared in her presence, each of the ten men have described her the exact same way. The description of her is as follows. A young girl of maybe nine or ten years of age, wearing a red sweater and a bright red Christmas hat. She's holding a wrapped present in her hands, and she appears to be very worried. The first fireman that saw the little girl was named John. He saw her at the end of a long battle with a local restaurant fire. He said the girl walked up to him, tugged on his smoky jacket, and asked him if he had seen her father. The man was understandably shocked to see a young child in such a dangerous place and was about to grab her and take her outside into safety when he said, and I quote, she just disappeared. He told the other men about what he had seen and while they searched the place just to be safe, they reported seeing no little girl and attributed his story to a hallucination due to excessive smoke inhalation. That was at least until two weeks later when the local library caught fire briefly and four men reported seeing a little girl rush into the flames wearing again a red hat and a red sweater and holding something that they couldn't make out from that distance. They searched all around the area for the little girl, but nothing was ever found. No one knows much about the ghost of the little girl or what she wants exactly, although it seems she is looking for her father. But she has continued to haunt the town over the years, never leaving, never aging, and most sadly, never yet finding her father. I've lived in New York City all my life, and I have countless stories that I can tell you about this city, but this one takes the cake for sure. I live in one of the safest and most affluent neighborhoods in all of Brooklyn, near the Verrazino Bridge. My friends and I, being high school students at the time, would use fake IDs to get into this college bar in Manhattan most weekends. There is one train line that serves my neighborhood, and even then it's a decent walk to get to the nearest station. On this night, my friends and I left our neighborhood and boarded the train. Everything was totally fine on the way to the bar, it's one straight shot ride there, and we had a pretty decent time. I left the bar at around 3 in the morning, and my friends decided that they would all stay at one of my friend's grandparents' house in the neighborhood next to mine, as to not get caught by their parents, which was served by a different train line. We boarded the train headed toward my neighborhood but my friends disembarked about seven or eight stations before I needed to get off so that they could transfer to the other train line. As I said before, my neighborhood is very affluent and most people don't use the subway and opt for cars instead. It's semi-urban. Imagine a mix of New Jersey and a scene out of Saturday Night Fever. Therefore, I was the only person in my car. Two stops after my friends left the train, a man wearing a stuffed black backpack entered the car and sat down in one of the corner seats next to an advertisement plastered on the wall. I paid little attention to him, but anyone boarding the train at 3am in my area would be kind of unnerving, especially because of his shabby appearance. Not homeless, but he definitely had not showered for a few days. 
My eyes stayed glued to my phone for about five minutes until my attention was ripped away from AFK Arena due to the man removing a large permanent marker from his backpack. He began writing on the advertisement and smiling at me every so often, as if he wanted me to acknowledge whatever he was scribbling down. The man began by drawing a hanged man with several religious crosses surrounding him, and then began to write phrases on the advertisement. The end is near, you will pay for your sins, the awakening is upon us, etc, etc. Normal things for a super-religious person to say or write, even if it was unnerving that this was happening at 3am in an empty train car. I tried to shrug off the situation because I didn't want to freak myself out, as I tend to overthink things like this. However, the next time I looked up at the advertisement, he had written, make sure you check behind you on your way home, and gave me that unnerving smile once more. At this point, I freaked out. I was still semi-drunk, and my anxiety disorder was not helping anything to the situation at hand. I got up and moved to the opposite end of the car. My station was next, so I thought I was just dealing with some loony and that I'd be fine. As I exited the train, the man exited as well. Now here's where I really felt like I was in danger. He was following me, with a blank face. No smile, no making sure that I was paying attention to his actions, just blank. I began briskly walking through my silent neighborhood. No one was out, it was 3am for crying out loud. The man trailed behind me with his backpack my entire way home, and I made sure to double lock my doors once I got inside. I didn't tell my mom because I knew she would have had ten times the panic attack that I did on the train. When I entered my room, I peered out the window. There the man was, staring blankly at my front door. He stood there for about five minutes before leaving, trailing off into the darkness. I have no idea what the man wanted from me, or why he followed me off of the train. To this day, I still make myself believe that he was simply deranged or had some sort of mental illness. Not that he had any sinister intentions. Weird stalker Bible freak on the subway? Let's not meet again. For background information, I'm a female on a volunteer fire department, and this happened a few years ago when I was 20. During our drills at my former department, our bay doors were left open so people have been known to walk by and talk to us, ask us questions, or just look at the trucks. One evening, this dude, 23 male, strolls by. A fellow firefighter from another town, which isn't uncommon. Firemen stop by other departments all the time when in town. He made his rounds and was talking to my chief, my captain, and the young guys. And he made his way over to me and started chatting me up. He was a nice guy and good looking enough. We exchanged snapchats, and it didn't take long to figure out what a psycho he was. After a week of talking, he messaged me saying, So, how come you didn't swipe right? Confused, I asked him what he meant, and then this unfolded. He told me all of this in an attempt to impress me with how devoted he was. He found me on a dating app, used my picture from the dating app to find my Facebook since in my photo I'm wearing a uniform that had my last name. That was definitely my bad. He then used my profile picture to find out what fire department I was on by looking closely at the fire truck in the background. He told me he walked by my department almost every day to see when we drilled and to spot me. As he's telling me this, I'm confused as heck, and he goes, I'm having a pretty rough day, if I can come over. Cue to him telling me he's on his way. He used my Snapchat location to find my work and house. 
My location on everything is now off. When he came to my house, he brought a love letter and gifts. He said he was sorry and confused and just really wanted things to work out. I told him that he needed to leave and never speak to me again, to which he obliged by leaving, saying if that would make me happy. He made maybe three to four new Snapchat and Facebook profiles in an attempt to add me back. At one point, he got clever and made his Snapchat username Chris Smith 1990 which made me go, hey, it's my friend, Chris Smith. Lo and behold, it was not Chris Smith. Once I realized it wasn't my friend, but instead the psycho, he asked what he could do to make it up. I texted get lost and go set yourself on fire. I then got a video of him walking into the woods. And then he set himself on fire. He flickered a lighter over his hand and I thought, yeah, haha, okay. And then his entire hand and arm lit up, followed by screams and a cutout. I started to freak out, thinking, well shit, and immediately got a photo of the hairs on his knuckles burnt off in his burnt shirt. He was okay, and coated his arm in something flammable, but something that wouldn't actually damage him. Blocked again. He finally gave up after coming to my house again, and I had a gun in my hand and told him to stop or the cops would be involved. But to be fair, it wasn't loaded. I didn't know how to use it and was planning on swinging the thing if it got really bad. So, crazy stalker who set himself ablaze? Let's not meet. I don't know what compelled me to finally share this, but I have been thinking about it a lot the last few days and thought it'd fit in the sub relatively well. I'm one of those longtime lurkers who has been sitting on their story for ages but I finally got around to writing my experience down and hope someone out there finds this interesting to read. When I was about 8 years old, my parents were going through a divorce and me and my older sister used to spend a lot of time at our grandparents' house. It's a long ranch-style home on a corner in a very nice neighborhood that's a 10-minute walk from a gas station, grocery store, and a few fast food restaurants. The streets are long and lined with well-manicured houses cradled by big scenic California valley hills all around. We were never very wealthy, but my grandpa bought it as a fixer-upper many years ago, and the property value has skyrocketed since then. As you can imagine, it's a very safe spot, and although there weren't many kids in the neighborhood, it wasn't uncommon to see neighbors walking their dogs or pushing a stroller down the sidewalk outside of our house. Although my mom was especially protective all our lives, this particular neighborhood was densely populated, and my family knew just about everyone who lived there. She grew up in that neighborhood herself, so she was understandably trusting. She would once in a while let me and my sister walk to the Rotten Robbie gas station on the other end of the block to grab a snack. I would always get a ring pop and my sister would grab a Three Musketeers before we made our way back home. My sister was about 11 at the time, and this small amount of freedom was a really big deal to us. Nothing compared to walking down that street all by ourselves in the summertime, laughing and joking around, a couple dollar bills in our pockets. I felt like I owned the world. The one oddity I ever noticed around the neighborhood was a small camper parked on the side of the road opposite to the gas station, right along the backside of the fence of another house. It sat there in the shade like a permanent fixture, all the windows constantly covered by opaque beige curtains. I can't explain why, but it always gave me this deep sense of foreboding when I'd pass it. I was almost positive someone was living inside of it because, at times, I'd hear the air conditioning running as it sat stagnant in that same spot. The hairs on the back of my neck would always stand on end as I passed it. 
particularly as I passed the camper door, and I'd always keep an eye on it for fear that one day it'd swing open just as I came to pass by. I think what bothered me the most was a drawing taped to the door from the inside. It was extremely messy, a sketch of odd lines and a brown colored pencil that was frustratingly indescribable. I could see the outline of something, a vague shape, but could never make out what it was intended to be. I never had the nerve to stop and stare long enough to really investigate, but each time I walked by I'd steal a glance. A year prior to the incident I'm about to describe, I was walking with my mom past the camper in the shade. We had just gotten to the park nearby and unfortunately had to pass the camper before we could cross the street and continue walking. I didn't want to seem afraid, so I kept on walking right behind her and didn't object when she walked past it. This time I felt a little more brave. I was frustrated not being able to decipher the drawing for so long. And while my mom was feet away, I stopped in front of the camper door and took a moment to really look at the drawing. Upon closer inspection, the paper was filthy. I remember doing a project in elementary school where we soaked printer paper in black coffee to make it look aged. And that's what it reminded me of. My mom walked on without noticing I'd stopped following her. But my eyes stayed fixed on the indistinct mass of dirt cake scribbles until I could make out what looked to be a tiny malformed face. My stomach turned, I immediately felt cold and disgusted as my eyes trailed over the rest of the image. I didn't know what kind of creature it was at the time, but now I can look back and say the drawing was a badly deformed fetus, inside a mass of large, perfect circles like those made by a circular ring ruler. Its face was contorted as if in pain. It was so graphically disturbing and seemed to portray this odd sense of suffering that stuck with me for days. As a child, I didn't know how to process it and the mental image still makes me sick to think about. I had never seen anything like it before. Adrenaline flooded my body and my chest hurt with fear, but I selfishly thought of my glorious little trips for ring pops and said absolutely nothing as I followed behind my mom. This was, in retrospect, a classically terrible idea. It's one of those things you scream at main characters in movies for. Ever since my ill feelings towards the camper had been elevated by the drawing on the door, I thought about it every time we drove by, and about a month later, my mom once again graced us with several bucks and permission to walk down to Rotten Robbie and grab our respective snacks. I thought about telling my sister what I'd seen on the way there, but she was older and braver and I was terrified she'd make me cross the street with her to check it out. It was a bright sunny day, and I told myself with false certainty that nothing was going to happen. If I didn't acknowledge it, maybe it'd go away. We walked past the camper and it was thankfully uneventful. On the walk back, I was feeling more comfortable and was focused on fighting open my candy wrapper while my sister walked alongside me. We passed the camper a second time, but I didn't give it half as much thought as the first time. I don't remember what we were talking about, but I recall being interrupted mid-sentence as my sister softly yet firmly said my name. There was a distinct fear in her voice that immediately set me on edge like a bucket of ice water. All my senses heightened, and I became aware of everything, including the sound of haphazard footsteps about ten feet behind us. It was accompanied by a heavy rustling sound like a heavy backpack, and nervously I half-turned my head to look. A man with a long, unkept beard and wearing many layers of ragged clothes stood behind us, eyes unmistakably burning into our backs as he walked. His movements weren't normal, 
It was a drunken shuffle, like each of his feet were unimaginably heavy and needed to be moved one grand effort at a time. His shoulders were skewed, head tilted downward with a strange arc of his neck. I could hear his shoes scraping the gravel with every step, but rather than seemingly genuinely intoxicated, it was as if he was intentionally meandering our direction like a zombie with a direct effort to frighten us. Behind him, I saw the camper door was wide open for the first time in all the years we'd spent living there, and realized this was the man who had been living inside. He's following us, I choked out, my eyes filling with tears. My mind was spinning as I stared straight ahead again, the wide street and sidewalks abnormally empty all around. My sister grabbed my hand. She squeezed it hard enough to hurt without looking my way, speaking carefully under her breath. On the count of three, we race home she told me in a very serious tone of voice. I couldn't reply with a growing lump in my throat, but every single cell in my body understood we had to put some distance between us and this man as quickly as possible. She began to count steadily while we walked faster, and the most terrifying part is that he started running before we even had a chance to. He must have heard her directions to me and tried to get a head start by sprinting our direction before she got to three but his footsteps were noisy and we bolted like deer the instant we heard him behind us. I'll never forget it. The chase felt exactly like you imagine in your nightmares. The fear your pursuer is inches away from grabbing your arm or a fistful of your hair. I pictured myself being dragged into the van with nobody around to see or hear me. We ran so fast we didn't even have the breath to scream, and peering back behind me about ten seconds later, I saw him running our direction, with absolutely none of the impairment he showed with those zombie-like steps moments before. I think back on it now, and he may have been deliberately pretending to be handicapped to lower our guard so we wouldn't start running. The thought is terrifying, but I can't rationalize it any other way. We made it to our grandparents' house, and without even looking behind us, yanked open the stubborn old door before slamming it closed and scrambling past their excited dogs to get as deep in the house as possible. I don't even think we locked it, as our main goal was getting within the line of sight of any adults as quickly as possible. My mom was talking to my grandpa at the table, and gave us an amused look when we bounded into the living room. Since we were kids, running around wasn't anything out of the ordinary, and she didn't ask what happened as we collapsed on the couch and tried to catch our breath. The inside of the house felt so safe and felt in such good spirits that I didn't even want to bring up what had just happened. Like waking up from a nightmare, you didn't want to talk about it. I was desperate to go back to normalcy. I wanted to forget it entirely, to unwrap my candy and act like everything was completely normal for the sake of my own sanity. And that's exactly what I did. I asked my sister a few years back if she remembered this incident. I'm 25 and she's 28 now. And her response was strange. She remembered immediately without the need for me to provide details but she quickly waved it off and insisted he had to have been a bored homeless man and looking to spook some kids walking home with no real intent to harm anyone. I don't know, I'd like to believe it's some innocent misunderstanding, but like they always say about gut feelings, they're rarely wrong. I feel in my soul that he wanted to hurt me and my sister that day. I never told her or anyone else about the strange drawing on the door, and I'm not sure if my sister saw the open door and connected him to the camper or not. It's one of my biggest regrets as I would hate for any other children to have been less fortunate after innocently walking past the camper in the shade. 
I believe he may have chosen the spot between the park and the gas station deliberately due to the number of children walking around the area. I never saw the camper again a day or so after this. I'm not proud of how I handled this and would encourage anyone who finds themselves in a similar situation to contact authorities immediately for the safety of others around. I don't know if this whole story comes off as melodramatic, but it was very real and very frightening in a way I can't forget. So, possibly deranged camper guy by the gas station. Whatever your intent was, let's not meet. Short background story. I, 24-year-old female, have been dating my boyfriend since I was 15. The first six years of our relationship had been kind of long distance. I used to go visit him on the weekends, and it would take me around two hours by bus plus train to reach the station where he would come pick me up. The story takes place when I was 18, so I was quite used to public transportation by then, and I was aware of the creeps and weirdos one would encounter while traveling. Nothing really creepy had ever happened to me, apart from the usual stares and unsolicited, hello beautiful. One Saturday morning, I got on the usual train for the last 15 to 20 minutes of my trip, after traveling for about an hour and a half by bus. I always tended to sit either close to other girls or to families with children. This one time, the train carriage was quite empty, so I sat across from a guy with flamingos on his t-shirt and a laptop. I don't really remember who the other people on our carriage were. That seat just looked like the safest one. Shortly after the departure, another guy entered the carriage and sat down next to me. He looked to be around 25 to 30 years old. He was wearing some dirty old clothes and he smelled like sweat and possibly booze. He said hi and I said hi. As I wrote before, I was quite used to weirdos talking to me on the buses and trains, so I didn't immediately feel like I was in danger. In my experience, it was usually better to engage on a short and meaningless conversation than to ignore them completely. He asked what my name was and I made one up. Then he asked why I was traveling all alone and I said my boyfriend was waiting for me at the following station. I hoped this would be enough to make him desist, but I was so wrong. He started telling me that he had just gotten a new phone and he had lost all of his friend's numbers. He asked me to give him my number so he'd have someone to talk to at night. I politely declined. At that point, I was starting to feel very uncomfortable, but my stop was only 5-10 to 10 minutes away, and I still thought he was going to give up and leave. He insisted on me giving him my phone number and started getting closer to me. At this point, I stopped answering his questions and looked in the opposite direction. This must have bothered him because he suddenly put his dirty hand on my thigh to get my attention. I was terrified, but I managed to utter a shaky, don't touch me. I wish I had yelled it, but I didn't, and no one in the carriage noticed what was going on. Not even the flamingo guy who was literally in front of us, or maybe he noticed and didn't care at first. The guy didn't take his hands off of me, and I was petrified. I don't remember if he said something else at that point, because I was focused on his hands on my jeans. I gained some more courage and managed to tell him to leave me alone, in a slightly louder voice. I guess that some people started looking in our direction in that moment because he suddenly got up and left. I started crying for the relief as soon as he exited the carriage. The flamingo guy asked if I was okay and if I needed to call someone. I said I was fine. I tried to call my boyfriend but he didn't answer because he was driving to come pick me up. I thought it was over. The train started slowing down and I got up in order to get off. Little did I know that the creepy guy was most probably keeping an eye on me from the window of the carriage door after he left. 
I got off the train and started to look around, hoping to see my boyfriend, who would sometimes wait for me on the platform. At that point, I noticed that the guy had stepped off the train as well. As soon as we made eye contact, he started walking towards me. I felt my heart drop. I turned around and started walking quickly towards the stairs, hoping he would lose me in the crowd. As soon as I reached the underground corridor, I started running. I got to the other side of the tunnel. I ran up the stairs and towards the restrooms. I don't know why I didn't run to the main hall instead. I was panicking and I just went for the first place that came to my mind. I locked myself into one of the cubicles, made sure it was closed, and then got up on the toilet so he wouldn't see my feet. I was wearing a pair of quite recognizable boots. 20 to 30 seconds later, I heard someone come in and hastily try all the door handles. Of course, it could have been anyone, but I'm convinced it was him. It just made no sense for anyone else to try to open all the doors like that. I remember feeling my heartbeat in my throat while I was waiting for him to leave. I remained still and silent for what felt like ages until I heard him walk away. At that point, I started crying again and finally managed to call my boyfriend and tell him I was locked in one of the toilet stalls. When he got there and I came out of the stall, I was shaking uncontrollably, but he somehow managed to calm me down. When we got out of the restrooms, there was no sign of the guy and I never saw him again. Looking back now, I know I should have reported him to the authorities, but I stupidly thought that they wouldn't believe me or that they were going to shrug it off as a not a big deal. After all, nothing really bad had happened on the train and I had no proof that it was him trying to open the stall doors. This experience made me avoid trains for a while, even though after some time I managed to overcome my fear. Please, creepy guy on the train, let's not ever meet again. I was a high school student living with my mother in a third floor apartment. I used to sleep in the living room because the apartment only had one bedroom and it was my mom's. I was happy with that little space I had. I was a happy kid. I always got up at 6am to go to school and my mom always got up at 5am to have time to shower and make breakfast before dropping me at school and heading to work. That morning I woke up and the lights were all on. Every single one of them, even the one in my room. I went to grab my phone and it wasn't there. Odd. I headed to the bathroom and saw all the drawers and doors of every furniture we had were open. I was deeply confused. Anyways, my mom came out of the bathroom and asked me what the hell I've been doing. I told her that I didn't know what she was talking about and that I thought she had done it since she was always up an hour earlier than me. I also asked if she had seen my cell phone. Then I saw it, deep inside her green eyes, the realization. I could see the fear and all the pieces inside her head clicking into place. She leaped to the kitchen and found the window wide open, a kitchen knife on the ground, and some dusty fingerprints on the wall where someone put weight on to climb inside. It was then when my sleepy head put the pieces together too. Someone, somehow, climbed all the way up our balcony, got inside the apartment and robbed us, all while I was asleep in my bed right there in the living room. She hugged me and asked me if I was okay. I said I never heard anything. Didn't even wake up when this unknown person turned the lights on and rummaged through our stuff. It was super weird. I've been the lightest sleeper since I could remember. They didn't dare to open my mom's bedroom door so she didn't notice anything. My grandma says that some angel protected me in my sleep and that's why I didn't wake up. But I don't believe in that stuff. I don't think they knew I was there either. Police never found the robber and we put steel bars on the window. We moved anyways sometime after that.
This happened when I was still in high school, and at least six years have passed. My mother and I moved from that apartment, and now I'm growing up and living with my boyfriend. But until today, I'm still paranoid and keep thinking, why didn't I wake up? Though I am grateful that I didn't. This happened to me back in the 90s when I was 15 years old and babysitting my neighbor's kid. The kid that I was watching was 7 years old. He was a fun-going little lad. We had all kinds of fun when I would babysit for them. I would cook popcorn, we would watch movies together, and he would show me his comic book collection. Occasionally... He would take me down to the basement and just try to spook me out with little things that he would make up here and there. All in all, he was my favorite kid to babysit. He was just very positive and easygoing. Our neighborhood is very quiet. It's a great suburb area where kids can be raised without any worries. Heck, I don't even think that half of the community even locks their front doors at night. It's one of those type of neighborhoods. They just don't make them like this anymore. This occurrence happened on a Friday night. The parents had called me the previous Wednesday and asked if I was available. And of course I said yes. I always need money for them all. The parents asked for me to get there at around 6 o'clock. I arrived 10 minutes early to say hello to everyone. They gave me the casual list of things to do and not to, of course, showed me around the kitchen of things to cook for him for dinner, and what time they expected him to be in bed. Since it was a Friday night, they gave him a later curfew that evening. His curfew for that evening was 11pm. I don't know what kind of dinner they were going to, but they weren't expected back until after midnight they had mentioned to me. Didn't matter to me, I was getting paid by the hour and they paid pretty well, so I was jazzed either way. I fed him a TV dinner. I'm not lazy, that's actually what he asked for. He couldn't wait to show me this new movie that they had at Blockbuster that they had rented the day before. As he was wrapping up dinner, I put the VHS in the VHS player and we began watching The Ring. It was rated PG-13 and I already got permission from his parents for him to watch it. They didn't think it was inappropriate, even for his own age. If that was my kid, I would definitely not let him watch that. Even though it's PG-13, it would still give him nightmares in my opinion, but it's not my kid. At about midway through the movie, we started hearing a knock at the door. I paused the movie and told him to stay put. I would go check it out. They have a peephole that he couldn't even reach anyway, so it didn't make any sense. Plus, I want to make sure the kid's safe. The parents never mentioned to me that they were expecting any company that evening. The light was already left on for the parents' arrival. I slowly approached the door and put my eye against the peephole and looked out. There was... Nobody outside the front door. I thought to myself, maybe it was just some kids pranking the neighborhood. Or maybe we just both heard it on the movie and assumed it was our front door. 
I shrugged it off and walked back over to the living room and played the movie and sat back down on the couch. A couple minutes had passed by, and again, we heard knocking at the front door. There was no mistaking at that time, and the last knock sounded like someone was beating their fist against the front door on the other end. I paused the movie and told him to hush and stay on the couch. I tiptoed back over to the door and again looked out the peephole. To my shock, there was two young boys just standing there. I couldn't clearly see their faces. They looked to be around the same age as my client's kids. Were they friends of his? What were they doing out past curfew this late at night without an adult? I unlocked the door and slowly opened it. Both boys had some raggedy looking jeans on with sweatshirts with the hoodies pulled up over their heads. Uh, can I help you boys? It's a little late. Are you here to play with Sammy or something? Where are your parents? The taller boy spoke. Can we come inside? Uh, I don't think that's a good idea, boys. You're not accompanied by your parents, and it's already past 9pm. Plus, Sammy's parents didn't mention that he was going to be getting any visitors tonight. I'm sorry. I was just about to shut the door and say goodnight when I heard the noise of Sammy behind me. Who are they? I turned my head back to Sammy. Wait. These aren't friends of yours? Uh-uh. I don't know those boys. Why do they look so funny? He pointed forward past my direction. I turned around to face the boys on the front porch. Their heads were risen, looking directly at me. I could see their full faces now. Both boys had pitch black eyes. Their skin was as pale as snow in their eyes. Their eyes were pitch black. They both suddenly grinned in unison, like something of a horror movie. I slammed the door shut, and I locked it, and I told Sam to get back to the living room. We're calling your parents. We both rushed over, and I grabbed the house phone and started to dial their number. The parents came home about 30 minutes later. I tried to explain to them what had happened. They think it was just some kids pranking, but I got a very bad feeling that those weren't kids at all. This probably isn't the scariest story that any one of you have ever heard before, but it's my story and it's 100% true. My dad and I had rented a cabin, well, he rented a cabin from some Airbnb online, and we were just doing a little father-daughter getaway for the weekend. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was beautiful. It was somewhere up in the mountains near some little lake that he wanted to go fishing at. I'm a city girl, but I do respect nature as well, so I was totally down for the cabin getaway. When we had first arrived and unpacked everything... Everything was completely normal. 
We prepped everything in the kitchen, and he was going to prep for something for that evening's dinner. But first, he wanted to give me a little tour around the neighborhood. Basically, it was just woods, but there were some nice little hiking trails that he wanted to explore with me on the first night. After we had hiked around, more like walked around, there wasn't even any mountain areas for trails near the cabin. We got inside and we started to freshen up and I took a shower. Once I finished my shower, he told me that dinner was going to be ready in about 30 minutes, so I went to go pop on the TV and see what was on. After dinner, we called it a night. After that four-hour drive, plus he magically wanted to go hiking afterwards, which I never understood why because we were both dead tired when we first arrived, I had no interest in watching a movie. I just wanted to catch some Z's. Sometime during that night, I heard knocking at the front door. I got up out of my bed and put on my robe and opened the bedroom door. I was greeted by my father, still half asleep, rubbing his eyes, just asking me, Did you hear that too? I nodded my head. Yeah, Dad. Somebody's at the front door. Which is odd. Nobody but his stepwife knew that we were going to be out here. The nearest neighbor cabin was miles away, and we weren't even on the main road. Who would even come to this cabin in the middle of the night? My dad and I slowly approached the big wooden door. This is an old cabin. There was no peephole in the door. All we had was a side window with some old 1960s shades over the glass. My dad and I slowly peeked through and pulled the curtains back just a couple of inches to peek into the front. There was a couple children just standing there. They weren't even wearing jackets. It's in the middle of the night. They were dressed like it was summertime or something. They looked cold. They were pale. Probably around four feet tall. Probably around the ages of ten or eleven. As soon as we moved the curtain back, both of their heads jolted to the left, staring directly at us in unison. Both with grins on their faces that looked demonic from ear to ear, they both spoke. It's cold. Can we come inside and warm up? It's a bit chilly tonight, isn't it? <laughs> come on, open up. No. My dad and I stood back, releasing our grip from the curtains. We almost fell onto the dining room table in fright. What is that, Dad? Who are they? He told me just to go back to my room and lock the door. He would come talk to me in a little bit. I told my dad, yes, but please do not open the door. He assured me that he had no intention of doing so. He just wanted to watch and see what they were up to. A few minutes had passed by and my dad knocked on the door and I let him in. He looked at me in total confusion. I asked him what's wrong. Who are they? Did you talk to them? He replied. No. I looked back out the window as soon as you left towards the bedroom. 
they were gone. Last Halloween was the first year that we let our kids go out by themselves with their friends. Our house was fully decorated as we loved the spirit of Halloween. Heck, it's more important to us than Christmas. I know, we're such pagans, aren't we? So anyways, we had a ton of candy. The whole front of the house was fully decorated with spooky music going off with strobe lights and little fog machines out by the grass. Our house was like the best house in the whole block. And we were on a cul-de-sac too, which made it even better and more safer for kids. We told our kids to be home by 9.30. That was the cutoff point. No matter how much candy you had, you best get your butts home before 9.30. It was around 9pm when this had happened. We remember this clear as day. We got a lot of trick-or-treaters that night. But around 8.30 or so, it really started to die down. I guess most kids had the same curfew that we gave our kids. So we gave ourselves a pat on the back for that one. But at around 9pm though, we got the strangest knock at the front door. <coughs> Giving my husband a sign. <sighs> Last one, I'm guessing. And walking to the front door with the bowl of candy, I unlocked the front door and slowly cracked it open. Can I come in? Please. I want to come inside. I stood there with my arms crossed, tapping my boot. Uh, how about trick-or-treat, right? And how come you're not dressed up as anything? You can't just go knocking on people's doors expecting to get candy and you're not even in a costume. The kid just stood there looking downwards, but I could tell he was grinning at me. He then replied softly. <laughs> Trick or treat. He then lifted his head up at me, and that's when I saw the darkness of his pitch black eyes. Here's some background information, just to get it out of the way. Pardon if it seems like I'm rambling at all. My brain has tried to suppress this incident a lot. I was 16, female, 5'4", and slightly chubby. I had just transferred from a small, heavily Catholic high school to a fairly large public school for my mental health and chronic physical illness. Also because I conclude that I was agnostic and wanted nothing to do with, with Catholicism. No offense at all to anybody who practices it. I was just getting used to my classes and the layout of the school and I was eager to see what this school had to offer. I met some cool people, had some cool teachers, and I was getting straight A's for the first time in my life. I thought things were looking up from my bumpy past until I met him. His name was Gibby. He had messy dark blonde hair, 
that reached down to the small of his back, wide-set piercing blue eyes, and was shorter than me, which was surprising because I'm pretty tiny for people in my state. I'm not one to judge people by their appearance, but I could tell that he didn't have a lot of friends just because of how reserved he was. I have sort of a soft spot for making friends with people who don't have a lot, as I was sort of an outcast in middle school for being a massive dork, so I know what it's like not to have a lot of people to lean on. His hair often brushed onto my desk, and for a while I didn't really mind it. But one day he shook his head, which resulted in his massive locks of hair to slap me right in the face, successfully launching my pencil off my desk onto the classroom floor. I was spacing out, thinking of God knows what, and I was, to say the least, shocked out of my headspace and let out a large gasp, which elicited the attention of a lot of my fellow classmates. He turned around realizing what his frizzy hair had done and he apologized profusely. And I laughed it off with some of the classmates, not really thinking much of it. After class, he ran up to me awkwardly and apologized again. We exchanged some small talk and he offered to walk me to my bus. I obliged and it seemed pretty harmless at first. I should have known. Man, I should have known. He began to walk me to my buses pretty much every day and I didn't really mind his company. He has a very edgy sense of humor, which aligned a lot with my humor, but his tended to be a little more on the nihilistic end of the edgy humor spectrum. He joked a lot about killing himself and how ugly he was, and nobody would ever love him. Me feeling bad was trying to convince him that it simply was not true. This is when red flags slowly started to rise, but... It only got worse from here. I eventually found out that he had an abusive family and that he used to be hit a lot by his mother, which I cannot confirm this, but I never met his parents, nor do I want to. His parents had put him into psychiatric care because he was diagnosed with psychosis and was supposed to be taking his medication, which, surprise, surprise, he was not. I'm all for mental health awareness and helping those in need, but I simply didn't know how to deal with this at the time and did not sign up to be his personal therapist. I tried to be supportive and gave him advice and pushed him into taking his medication again, but it never really led to any good outcome. At this point, it became clear to me that he had developed feelings for me, romantic, purely sexual, or both. I'll never know. At this time, I had gotten into a relationship with my now ex-boyfriend, Jake. He was sweet and was in my art class. We were both pretty nerdy. He was a lot taller than me, lanky with facial hair, and was pretty nice. And I bet you can guess where this is going. He started getting super jealous, saying that Jake didn't appreciate me as much as he did and that he was just using me for my body which didn't make any sense because me and Jake were never sexually active with each other. I tried to reassure him that I was happy and that nothing was wrong, but he didn't want to listen. I eventually told Jake about Gibby and my best friend Violet that didn't go to my school, and they were both obviously very concerned for me 
and began to push me into telling my guidance counselor, and so I did. I told her everything that had been happening and how uncomfortable he made me feel during my German class, and she reassured me that he wouldn't be bothering me again. You can also tell where this is going, can't you? He began to freak out calling me a traitor and a backstabber and called me a bitch. This didn't really faze me. I stopped seeing him in my German classes, blocked him, and I thought I wouldn't see him again. Or so I thought. Flash forward, about a year and a half from now, and me and Jake have parted ways, and I have actually dropped out of normal high school completely because of my declining health, and particularly because of Gibby, and decided to enroll into my local online high school so I could still get all of my credits. I'm starting to do better mentally. I've lost about 30 pounds and I'm still getting straight A's. You think me getting straight A's would prevent me from making my next stupid decision. Violet had brought up Gibby again, asking if he ever tried to contact me again, which he hadn't, and I should have just said no and left it at that. But no, my dumb brain decided that I must check up on Gibby to see if he ever got the help he needed. I opened Pandora's box by unblocking him. I sent him a DM on Instagram seeing how he was doing, apologizing for blocking him, and hoping he could understand why I did it in the first place. He seemed understanding, but it was most likely because he just wanted to desperately talk to me again. Things seemed to be okay, but one day, I mentioned that I was going to hang out with a friend, Shell, and he asked if he could come along, and I thought, sure, what is the worst that could happen? God, I'm so fucking stupid. We picked him up from his house, which is unnervingly close to mine, and he brings a friend without even asking. Red flag number one. Red flag number two was him and his buddy joking about smoking meth and overall just making extremely inappropriate remarks in front of my friend, whom they just met. Me and Shell are giving each other faces and are very uncomfortable. In hindsight, maybe going to the forest to hang out with these two wasn't the best idea. When we got there, nothing extreme happened, really. Gibby laid on his back and stared at the sky and asked me to join him. I politely declined, and he proceeded to get pouty, but didn't throw a fit about it. Me and Chill ventured into the woods for an hour or so and came back out to find them both on the forest floor, just staring into the sky. We told them we needed to start heading home since we both were still uncomfortable. Before we left, Gibby pulled me aside and asked me if I had any weed. In high school, I was an avid stoner, but I'd recently quit smoking at the time due to health concerns. I told him I had a gram at my house and that I didn't want any more, so I gave him the rest. I can't remember if I charged him or not for it, but even if he did pay, but it would never pay for the shit he put me through next. We dropped him off at home, and I finally get to rest after that awful experience. Not for long, though. Then he begins to DM me on Instagram again, begins to ask me very intrusive questions. Questions like, Do you have a Venus cleft? Don't look it up, trust me. I tried to steer the conversation away, his fetishistic questions, but then he hits me with the absolute bombshell and tells me that he had been masturbating to me almost every day after I had stopped talking to him. Me obviously appalled 
asked him what the fuck was wrong with him. He apologized and said that he couldn't help it and he couldn't control himself and that I was the only woman that he ever showed any compassion for him. He also told me he wasn't taking his his anti-psychotic medicine anymore, which I'm pretty sure I put two and two together already. Most people should know that if a woman shows any compassion towards you, that is probably not because she is immediately head over heels for you. But not Gibby. I was just trying to be a decent human being, but does that get you in some fucked up shit nowadays? Does it? Anyways, he then sends me a picture of his genitals. Like, that would make what he said any better at all. I'm fucking pissed. I say that this was a mistake and I should have never gotten into contact with him again. And then he begins to guilt tripping. He said that he was going to kill himself because of how bad he felt for hurting me and that he was an awful human being. I know if it was entirely his fault since his parents seemed to non-existent when they weren't abusing him allegedly. I begged him to seek help because obviously I don't want him to kill himself. But I can't be his therapist anymore. He doesn't harm himself. But then he starts becoming extremely hostile. Threatening to slit my throat and watch me bleed out. And just overall threatening to harm me. I tell him to never contact me again. He needs to stay the fuck out of my life. Or I'm calling the police and getting a restraining order. And if I ever see him again, I'm going to kick his ass. At this point, I'm done with him. Never want to talk to him again. But then he starts being desperate. He doesn't want me to leave him. And so he starts begging me to stay. And said that is the reason he said he wanted to kill me. Is because he wanted me to leave him. Yeah, I still don't understand his logic and I never will. Nor do I want to. I got off work at around 10pm and headed home. I live alone and always make sure my front door is locked before I leave for work. But when I got home, the door was unlocked. I knew for a fact I locked it when I left because, like I stated, I always lock it. I also have severe OCD and would not have forgotten to lock my door as I am so obsessed with my routine to forget. I was thoroughly unsettled by this and immediately retrieved my 9mm pistol from the drawer next to me by my front door. I set my bag of fast food I had picked up down and looked around in the dark living room fumbling for the light switch. Once the light flickered on, to my utter horror, my apartment was in complete disarray. Paperwork strewn all over the floor that had been put away in my office and my social security card and birth certificate were among the mess. I quickly made my way to my office and once I entered the room, I found all the drawers were open and my computer had been turned on and was on the lock screen as if someone tried to get into my computer. I checked the rest of the apartment and didn't find anybody. I put my gun back and immediately phoned the police. They arrived fairly quickly and took report of the break-in. They asked me if I had any enemies or if I had made anyone mad recently, to which I responded that I haven't. No such thing that had occurred and furthermore, I am not the type to have quarrels with people. I was quite dumbstruck by what I had come home to. I cleaned up the mess and attempted to sleep, tossed and turned most of the night while laying with my gun under my pillow. 
I would like to add that I am also a very paranoid person, so the whole thing naturally had me freaked out and every night I go to bed and have my gun under my pillow. The next day I had off, so I left to go hiking with my girlfriend. We started dating six months ago. I left around 9 a.m. and stopped by the Starbucks next to my apartment. While I sat in the busy drive through line, I looked up and noticed a man staring at me from across the street on the same side as my apartment complex. The thing that was the most interesting about this man, how much of a resemblance to me he bared. This guy had the same hair as me, was about the same height and weight, wore glasses like me, and looked to be about the same age as me too. He didn't appear to have any expression on his face and just stood there still as a statue staring at me. It was my turn to get my orders, so I grabbed my coffee, and when I went to pull out of the drive through the man was gone. The day went as planned, and my girlfriend and I had a great day together. I told her about the incident at my apartment and the man who looked and the man who looked like me, and she joked that perhaps my doppelganger had broken into my apartment. After I parted ways with my girlfriend, I made my way home. I was a little bit nervous to return home, fearing whoever had broken into my apartment might have returned. Whatever they were there for that night, they seemed to be looking for something. I arrived back at my apartment and made my way to my apartment unit. I live upstairs and approached the stairs to my front door. I heard someone coming down the stairs. I was still a good distance from the stairwell and was alarmed as I didn't have a neighbor that lived upstairs, therefore no one should have been coming down those stairs. I stopped to see who it was, and to my shock, it was none other than the same man I had seen earlier that morning. He walked quickly, looked down as he walked. I shouted at him to stop, but as soon as he heard me, he took off running and hopped the fence that separates the apartment complex from a large field and disappeared into the night. I ran upstairs to my apartment and tried the doorknob, which was once again unlocked. I went inside and was horrified. All of my walls in my living room were pictures of me and my girlfriend from that day. Pictures that looked as if they had been taken right from the tree line next to the trail her and I were on. Once again, I called the police to report the break-in. They came and searched the apartment as well as the entire complex. I told them about the man I had seen running into the field. They searched the field and returned with a pair of eyeglasses and a wig. The police took the items they found into evidence and opened a case. They stationed two police cars outside my apartment and informed the apartment manager about what was going on. It's been almost a week since this all started and nothing has happened since. No, no more random break-ins or creepy photos of me and my girlfriend. I've also been staying with a co-worker of mine until things die down. I have no idea why whoever is doing this is targeting me. Based on the items the police found in the field, my glasses in this person is actually pretending to be me for some odd reason. I don't know what any of this means. I'll be sure to give an update if anything else happens. When I turned 13, I had just moved in with my dad after certain unrelated circumstances happened with living with my mom. My dad had a new girlfriend at the time. She was nice, but didn't know her very well. About a month later, the girlfriend's friend was holding a birthday party, or, or gathering rather, 
for her father at the father's home. My dad brought my sister and I along to play with the grandkids while the adults hung out around a bonfire. The friend's father had been drinking and so were few others except for my dad. I was running around with the grandkids and was told to come here by the friend's father. He was visibly drunk. He leaned over and whispered to me, You're so beautiful. If I were your age, I'd ask you to marry me. My dad wasn't near where the man was sitting, so he wasn't aware of what happened. I didn't exactly know how to handle it, and I just walked away and continued to hang out with the kids. I was fairly uncomfortable after that, and I didn't really run around or play anymore. I just sat for the rest of the time. Not long after, one of the grandkids brought me into the room to show me something. I think one of their toys, and then I sat on the couch in the living room. There was music playing from the TV. This creep walks back into the home after I'd been sitting there for about five minutes by myself and tries to get me to dance with him. He asked me multiple times as I say no each time. He had finally walked away and I rushed out of the home so quick and found my dad and sat with him and at the time girlfriend. Luckily, I had never been back over there. I never told my dad this happened because I was so scared. Finally told him a few years later and he had wished that I said something at the time so he could have done something about it. I haven't talked about this since I told my dad about it. It's been 10 years since this happened and I still feel uneasy every time that I think about it. I wish I had told my dad sooner. The story I'm about to tell you happened yesterday night. I live in Nantes. West France. I'm quite a petite girl and I avoid confrontation whatever I can. I'm pretty good at it because since I can remember, I had a very strong sixth sense thing. I try to avoid people who make me anxious. It allowed me to survive some very dangerous situations and prevent one kidnapping, but that is not part of the story. Yesterday I visited a close friend of mine. A few days ago, she broke her leg, so I decided to cheer her up by giving her a few gifts. The atmosphere was so nice that I didn't notice when it got dark outside. Despite the late hour, I decided to go home. I said goodbye to my friend and left her apartment. I was about 40 minutes from home, but I walked this distance many times without any problems, so I thought it would be the same this time. Oh, how wrong I was. Less than five minutes passed and I just felt it was going to be hell. I was approaching one of the bridges in our city. I didn't see anyone around. I thought my senses were playing a trick on me. This happened before, so I kept going. The bridge was about 20 meters in front of me before I heard a conversation and a giggle. I turned my head slightly and saw three men walking towards me. I felt a cold sweat on my back, but it was too late to turn back. I didn't want to show them that I was afraid. I know this type of behavior provokes more harassment. I kept walking but turned the music down. I didn't take my headphones off because I didn't want them to know about my suspicions. I heard their footsteps behind me. They were saying something but I didn't know what because they were speaking in a different language. I was already on the bridge when they caught up with me. As I said, I'm a petite girl. They were over 180 centimeter tall, they surrounded me. I had no choice but to go ahead. A shudder ran through my body. 
I didn't know what they wanted or what they were saying, but I felt that I was in danger. They kept talking to me. They leaned over and whispered something into my ears, and they laughed. This sound will haunt me for the rest of my life. At one point, they noticed I was doing my best to ignore them, and then the worst began. They started making animal noises. It may sound strange and maybe even funny, but it was terrifying to me. They howled, growled, whistled, and kissed the air loudly. They did these things very close to my face. I was desperate, but where would I go? I was on a bridge. I would kill myself if I jumped into the water, or at least break both of my legs, if I were lucky. Those two minutes to cross the bridge felt like an eternity for me. When we got to the end of the bridge, I was sweaty close to tears. I thought I was going to throw up. I was shaking, which seemed to amuse them even more. And then a miracle happened. Someone called my name, very loud. I looked up and saw someone approaching us. He was a very tall man, several years older than me, but I didn't know him. I had no idea who he was or how he knew my name, but it didn't matter at the time. I felt he was my guardian angel. He came over to us and was staring furiously at the three strangers. I didn't see their faces, but they fell silent. What are you doing to my girlfriend? He asked, still frowning at them. He stretched out his hand in my direction, never taking his eyes off them. Come on, sweetheart. I did not wait. I didn't know who he was, why he was helping me, but I didn't care. I gripped his hand tightly and almost nestled against his shoulder. My heart was beating fast and loud, but I was so thankful that he came to help me. Three strangers and my savior exchanged glances. They were silent. I was starting to panic that they would attack him because he was there alone and I wouldn't have the strength to help him if they would attack. But it didn't happen. I almost heard their teeth grinding when one muttered something. My savior held my hand tightly and watched them. They turned back and went back on the bridge. We stood in the same place for some time. He looked at me and smiled. And at that moment, my body gave up. I started shaking uncontrollably and I almost drowned in my own tears. He didn't say a word. He just held my hand and gave me time to cool down. After a long moment, he offered to take me home. We walked slowly and talked about various things. Actually, he was talking all the time. I was just nodding. I found out he was walking near the bridge and noticed the whole scene. He decided to react and help me if it turned out that his assumptions were correct. I asked him how he knew me and how he knew my name. He looked surprised, then smiled and said he didn't know my name. He used this name because it is one of the most popular in the country. When we got home, I was still shaking but happy. I offered him something to drink. I don't live alone, so I wasn't worried about letting him in. But he kindly declined and we said goodbye. I can't believe how lucky I was yesterday. If I hadn't met him, I don't know if I could write about it today. So Luke, thank you. Thank you so much for saving me. I hope to meet you one day. As to these three strangers, I hope one day you will understand that your behavior is reprehensible and you will change your attitude to women who walk alone. And I hope I never meet you again. Update. I reported to the police about what happened to me. They were very helpful, but I feel uneasy thinking about it. 
I found out that I am not the only one who informed them about dangerous men walking down the street at night. Two women had done this before and they scribed the men who harassed them. The descriptions match so the police hope to catch them soon. I was scared and I was hesitant, but I told them about my savior too. Fortunately, he did not appear in any of the statements of the two women. One woman described three men, the other described five, but their description did not match Luke. I want to believe he had nothing to do with them, but I'll be careful. Thanks to you, I understand. I have to observe my surroundings and not let my guard down. I am still very grateful for Luke for saving me. I want to believe he is a great and honest man, and I want to thank you again for your warnings and support. If I find out more, I'll let you know. Hey, this is my first post ever on Reddit, and I'm on mobile, so I'm sorry for the shit formatting. This happened two years ago, August 11th, 2018. And since the anniversary just passed, I thought I should finally share this story. My fiance and I were on the second night of our two-night camping trip at a popular campground about half an hour from where we live. For reference, my fiance is black. We live in a predominantly white, conservative, and racist area. This is important later. On our first night, we kept hearing noises in the woods around us. The campsite right beside ours through the right was occupied, but the one to the left was not. The campsites are about 150 yards apart, and we had camped here in the exact same plot the year before. Needless to say, we were familiar with the area and the various kinds of animals that live in the woods. The first night, we heard shuffling around our tent. It was obvious something large moving around. We brushed it off and assumed it was just a deer. Now back to the main event. August 11th, we spent the day at the battlefields, a town over with my family. They had all been invited to join us for the day by my fiance as a surprise for me while he proposed to me. We stayed with my family into the evening about 6 p.m. before heading back to our campsite. When we got back, things were really odd. Someone had obviously been in our tent our blankets were thrown around, clothes were on the floor, and my backpack had been rearranged and I was missing underwear. But hey, we were stupid 19-year-olds and decided that since whoever had busted in had left and hadn't taken anything important, it was fine and they wouldn't come back. So I set up a campfire and sat out until it was dark, roasting hot dogs and s'mores, smoking cigarettes and celebrating our engagement. Around 9.30 p.m., we put out our fire and decided to go into our tent for the night to celebrate a little more. Nothing too loud or obnoxious. Immediately after we finished, we started to hear the noises outside our tent again, but this time we focused in. We heard clear footsteps and at one point, a man whispering. We looked at each other and our eyes got wide. Someone was definitely walking around outside our tent. We were still and completely silent, just listening to the footsteps, and we heard whispering again. Shit! Make that two men walking around our tent. As if we had the ability to read minds, my fiancé said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I agree, the bathroom was up on a hill from our site. Most people who were in the lower sites, like ours, drove their cars up to the bathroom. Now here's the part I still get chills thinking about it. We got up and we're getting dressed. My fiance had just turned on the light in our tent, put his binder on when a man spoke directly to us from right outside the tent. What are you doing? I can't 
even describe how malice and menacing this voice sounded. It was clearly directed at us, and he said it with a snicker. He was watching us through the walls of the tent. Again, for this part, we were stupid 19-year-olds. So we decided to just run for it to the car. My fiancé grabbed his pocket knife and his keys and stepped out of the tent. He pulled me with him and we ran like hell to the car. He pulled me with him and we ran like hell to the car. I heard the footsteps running behind us and then turning and running up to another campsite. At the bathroom, we talked over our options. We talked about sleeping in the car or driving into town. Then we had another idea. We drove back down to our campsite and began packing everything into the car. At this point, it was around midnight. We moved faster than I think either of us thought possible, wrapping up the tent with our belongings still in it and grabbing our folding chairs. We were all packed in five minutes and hopped into the car to leave. I jumped out at the end of the drive and grabbed our nameplate, which had my full name on it, off of the post. As we pulled out of the campsite, I saw our assailants for the first time. Stalking through the woods onto our campsite were two tall white men. I realized that these were the same men who had been driving past our campsite the whole time we were there, just glaring at us and muttering to each other. One was wearing camo hunting gear and the other was wearing a confederate black tank top, but both were carrying large hunting knives, unsheathed and at the ready. They turned when they saw our car driving away and one started to make chase until the other stopped him. I made eye contact with the man in camo and he smiled the most terrifyingly evil smile at me and shook his head slowly. We drove the long way home taking all the weirdest, hardest to follow roads and called my dad so he would know we were coming. When we got home, we told my dad everything and he just shrugged it off as us being paranoid. So I never told anyone else besides all of you now. I am convinced to this day that this was going to be a racially motivated attack. The campground was not heavily populated and my fiance was the only non-white person at any of the campsites. It was no accident that the two men who had been shadowing us since our arrival and wore confederate flags and had one on their truck decided to target the interracial couple. I still get cold chills when I think about how close we were being killed or seriously hurt that night and just how lucky we were that our reckless plan to just make a run for it worked. So, to those men who stalked our campsite with hunting knives, let's not meet. When I was in my early 20s and living in Chicago, I wasn't making much money. When I found this apartment, it was too good to be true. The top floor of a duplex and six rooms for $775 a month. The agent who showed me the apartment stressed to me that the landlords were very religious. I didn't have a problem with that, even if it did sound a little ominous. The landlords were an elderly couple that lived downstairs. They seemed okay at first. When I saw them in the yard, they would smile at me. I took good care of the house. Then when they saw I was having my boyfriend over, things started to get really weird. One day I was in my office writing. I hear a knock at the door. I open it and it's the old lady from downstairs. 
Before I can say hello, she says, Have you ever gotten an abortion? I shut the door in her face. No thanks. This was a colossal mistake. The house was laid out kind of weird. There was a door at the bottom of the flight of stairs that I thought led to a communal laundry room. But after accidentally opening it, once I discover it led directly into my landlord's living room. I unfortunately learned this the hard way. I was in the kitchen cooking. My boyfriend was at work and I was by myself when I heard what sounded like a click of a door. Okay, I say out loud. What the fuck was that? I didn't really make the connection. It could have been the door that led into their living room. I walked into the hallway and looked around. I don't see anyone at the bottom of the hallway. I poked my head into all of the rooms, nobody there. Then I looked down the staircase, leading to their house, and the, and the neighbor lady is standing there, staring me down. I screamed. She flinched and stepped back into her apartment and swung the door shut. After that, every time I left the house, and I spent every possible moment out of the house after that incident, I would come back and something would have been moved. A window would be shut. Once the shower was dripping and my towel was damp, I couldn't lock the door because since it was technically a door to their house, they were the only ones with the key. The knocking got so frequent, three or four times a day, that me and my boyfriend propped up an old mattress so we wouldn't have to hear it while we slept. The second to last straw was when I opened the door for work and the stairs were gone. I physically could not leave my house because there were no stairs. They had been dismantled and were set and were sitting on their porch. I called them repeatedly, but they didn't answer. Finally, their son came out of the house and explained they were remodeling their porch. He told me I had to cut through their apartment downstairs. I descended the stairs and opened the door and they were both sitting at their filthy kitchen table, staring at me. The phone was in its cradle. They must have heard it ringing. They kept staring at me with this blank look on their faces. I crossed the kitchen and left out their back door. A few days later, I come home from my job and notice the bathroom floor was almost completely flooded, like someone left a faucet on or a shower on. The old woman, seeing that I had come home, came upstairs and knocked, screaming at me that I had flooded the bathroom and that her son had to come fix it. I was... I was so run down at this point that I just told her it was okay. Her son comes by a few hours later. He is shit-faced. I open the door and tell him that I need an hour or so before he comes and picks something up and swings it at me. It was a massive wrench. I somehow duck out of the way and he stumbles over. I book it down the newly repaired stairs as quickly as possible and call the police. They come by and take down a complaint but claimed since there was no physical contact, they can't do anything. I learned, lady, I learned later that the old couple has a daughter on the force. In the middle of the night, me and my boyfriend and several of his friends packed all of our stuff into the Chevy Astro. We lived in hotels in the van for a month until we found another house. They never attempted to contact us again. Old landlords? Let's not meet again. Edit. I'm going to file a police report. I don't know why I haven't before. Thanks for inspiring me to do so. Second edit. I didn't technically file a police report. They just took down a complaint. Whatever that means.